what we call remote and what we call um, central or, or peripheral or whatever these terms we use, I think is also in our imaginations and socially constructed in some ways here. You're listening to Rural Roots. I'm Boyan Fierst. Today, you can hear my conversation with Dr. Filomena Dalima. She's a sociologist based at the University of Highlands and Islands in Scotland in Inverness. We were both recently in Montreal at a meeting of rural scholars, and I recorded this episode in the lobby of the hotel we were staying in. That's why you're going to hear some lobby noise in the background. Filomena's research is based in Scotland and European Union, but many of the lessons apply in Canada as well. I asked her to sketch for us some of the issues facing rural regions in the United Kingdom, especially in Scotland. She did that, but she also reflected on the lack of immigrant voices in any conversation about rural Scotland or rural England. In England, there's been quite a lot of discussion around counter-urbanisation and, you know, the whole, th- the whole thing about people from urban areas going to rural areas and so on and then commuting to urban areas for work and, you know, that kind of thing. So, and that's, um, that's been quite a strong discussion. There are many scholars working on that in the context of England. In, in Scotland, it's not, you know, the counter-urbanisation is not as strong as because we have a very different kind of rural geography you know we have the highlands which is in the north of scotland and the islands which people would argue is about the size of belgium that has only about 19 percent of the scottish population which is around five million so i think the highlands for example is one of the one of the most sparsely populated areas. Places like the Western Isles, you know, the Hebrides mm-hmm. and on, on, on the West, those islands, you know, they have very serious demographic issues and so on. So it's, it's kind of very different, you know. The other aspect of rural as well and remote is, you know, these labels that we use. You know, somebody in... Um, one of the islands like Orkney or Shetland or the West Islands may not see themselves as remote. You know, they, they might connect with a whole range of islands across the world and see themselves as the centre, if you like. So, you know, what we call remote and what we call um, central or, or peripheral or whatever these terms we use, I think is also in our imaginations and socially constructed in some ways here. The other difference in in Scotland and, and, and in England, in fact, is the the ways in which rural is constructed in the people's minds. You know, for example, in the context of my work, what I found when I, I started my my PhD really was on um, ethnicity and um, race and inverted commas and place. And uh, the reason I started to focus on that was because I was very interested in how rural was constructed as homogeneous, you know, in um, discourses on rural policy and and so on, where there wasn't really a recognition that rural areas were changing initially by immigrants coming from um, uh, the British colonies, you know, like Chinese coming to rural areas to set up businesses and so on. And I was fascinated by the presence of these and Pakistanis who had come to Scotland and then moved further and further north because that's where they could set up their shops because that's, you know, plenty of people were setting up shops in Glasgow, but 
further and further north, they weren't. They used to be itinerant salesmen before, so they'd come in their suitcases. And then eventually they set up shops. And, you know, they were into two, two or three generations, but they were very isolated families, really all around on the, on the islands and so on. And yet you'd never see them in the communities. You know, they would be in their shops or they would be in their takeaways, and Chinese largely at the time, but you'd never see them walking on a beach or climbing a mountain or taking their children to. Mm. So I began to be very interested in the way in which, in a way, rural was being constructed. So part of my thing was, well, actually, it is, there are different people here, there are diverse people, okay, there are one or two of them, but how are the services meeting the needs of these extreme situations? And my argument has always been that if you tailor your services to the the most extreme, you know, whether it's people with mental health problems or whatever, in isolated circumstances, then it should actually be inclusive for everybody else, you know. And so that was my first piece of work, which basically was about needs, not numbers, you know, because a constant um, mantra, if you like, from policymakers and academic researchers who are very used to urbanized ethnic group, minority ethnic groups and so on, sort of saying, well, the numbers don't warrant the, the, the research or the research is not robust enough because the numbers aren't there. And it's a vicious circle. We're never going to get the numbers. But it does not matter that these needs don't matter. You know, the, the people who are living, they don't have needs and access to, needs to access ish rights that they're entitled to. And the final point I'd make, because I think this is really important, is, um, in this binaries of assuming that everything in rural areas is white and you know people have written and everything in urban areas is kind of mixed and, and so on is also um, issue around whose knowledge counts you know you could argue for example in Britain where you know the English countryside and so on is very tied up with post with colonial imagery of rural England and so on and in Scotland, it's about, you know, the deer on the mountain, this kind of royal stuff, right? Yeah. And that's very exclusionary. It does not take into account the fact that there are, there are these hidden imperialistic kind of assumptions about the rural countryside. And actually, who is allowed to speak and who is not? So you never find, even though the Pakistanis and so on were... Pakistani communities and Chinese communities have lived in those communities for a long time. They've run businesses for a long time. They will never be included in the policy discourses that talk about rural. Scotland, just like Canadian provinces, does not have a say in overall UK immigration policy. And unlike Canadian provinces, it cannot fast track those immigrants that would meet its labor market needs. In fact, the need to control its own immigration policy was one of the arguments for the Scottish independence during the recent referendum. You know, Scotland had argued that the demographic needs generally, not just in rural areas, but Scotland has out-migration generally, because as Scotland as a whole probably does not find itself able to absorb the highly skilled workers or edu um, highly educated graduates that have been coming out of university, so they tend to go to the south. Okay? Mm -hmm. They have a real fear of the populations around 5 million going below that. There's always been this kind of, they call it the population time bomb problem. Okay, And so it's always been very keen to have some negotiation within 
the, the immigration settlement that Scotland could have a slight variation to those policies, but it's never really managed to happen because, um, you know, the discourse generally from the UK government is exceedingly negative. And within the current devolutionary settlement, there's no way of having variations in point systems. With the expansion of the European Union in 2004, Eastern and Central Europeans from 10 countries gained access to the opportunities in the Western Europe. In 2007, Bulgaria and Romania also became full members, with Croatia joining in 2013. This new wave of immigrants created new dynamics in rural Scotland. It also prompted research in rural immigration, research that Philomena has already been doing for years. You see, it's also about numbers, you know, and that's when the lit more and more people started getting involved in discussions and research, academics as well, on rural areas and migrants coming to new destinations is the word that's kind of used in, I think, uh, to some extent in the UK, but more in North America. So, but in, in Europe, definitely the whole issue about international migration, and I'll come back to that because really are EU migrants migrants, you could argue, you know, and there's, there's a whole issue about the way in which they're othered within, you know, the Central and East European Union um, uh, EU citizens that came were called migrants, but before that Spaniards and French and so on are not called migrants, okay? Interesting. So, so it's an interesting process, isn't it? And what I've observed happening is that People who were new to the whole area, obviously academics are always looking for new areas to research, began to replicate the, the, the research. They were not aware of the ethnicity race research that went on in rural areas before. So they started making the same statements that has actually already happened before. You know, and it was nothing new for people like me, because we're thinking, well, we've been making this argument for a very long time and we haven't got anywhere. But it was an opportunity to get issues addressed, but the focus was very racialized, I think, in some ways. So, you know, so Scots began to find connections with their Polish history, you know, the, the migration of Scots to Poland in the 18th century and so on. So that suddenly became, a, and you know, um, it, People started, uh, the Polish people who had had to leave being refugees or whatever after the war and so on, started feeling prouder of their roots and their relationships with, uh, with Poland. Whereas before, you know, they, they often have changed their names or, or whatever before. So it had a good effect in that sense, in the sense that, but you know, um, I, I, I do think that there is a kind of hierarchy of acceptability. That is not to say that the, po the Poles in particular, because they were the most numerous, and the other groups that have come, the Czechs and so on, do not experience a lot of racism. Mm -hmm. They do, you know. And um, even though, you know, and, and the, uh, the discrimination that they experience, um, and in a, w in a way, the way in which employers have these hierarchies in their own mind about who's a good worker and who isn't. And, you know, that's racialized and ethnicized in itself because they would say, ah, you know, uh, the, 
Poles are such good hard workers, but the local people don't want to work. You know, they're feckless, they're not hard working, they just really want to live on welfare, you know, and they've got such a good work ethic. But you also have that between ethnic groups as well. So um, in the Highlands, for example, just before Central and Eastern Europe became part of the EU in 2004, about two or three years before that, there were some uh, uh, Kurdish refugees. They were literally a group of men, you know, who were all sent up to the highlands and they all worked in fish processing factories. And um, yeah, there were always rumours about them. I did interview some of them. Uh, uh, there were always rumours about them having feuds and clan fights and I don't know what. And also because, I think because it was a small community, people felt threatened by these men hanging about and so on. Was, you know, it's most, when you, uh, most of the little towns are tiny and there's only one main street, so there's not a lot of places for people to hang about. And, um, and as soon, literally after May 2004, in June, these Kurdish refugees disappeared from these factories. They were literally, because you know, they always had insecure contracts and so on, they were replaced by Central and East European migrants because they were seen to fit into the culture better. So that's a kind of interesting way in which, you know, employers decide, you know, who's going to fit in and who's not. As the Eastern and Central Europeans poured in, Philomena and her colleagues researching rural migrations noticed that the reasons why people decided to seek employment abroad changed. These newcomers were not fleeing violence or political persecution. In the beginning, they were mostly migrating for economic reasons. But soon, as the economic conditions in Eastern and Central Europe improved, a new generation of mobile, young migrants came for all sorts of other reasons too. You will find different motivations. Um, a lot of them move well, initially moved for, for work. But, you know, but, but then, you know, people, you can't predict how your life's going to go. So, you know, they move for work. And so if you look at the early studies, including mine, you know, they were just working, collecting as much, they were not interested in, you know, they were making a, well, I'm not sure it was out of choice, really, but, you know, they were making a decision while they were getting paid more than they were pay, being paid in Poland or Czechs, not so much Czech, but um, Latvia or wherever, yeah, and then, uh, but that they would invest their energy and time in work and keeping in touch with their family for the rest of the time they had. Because, you know, I know that when I was trying to do the two fairly major regional studies that I was involved in, it was very difficult to get them to, to, to find the time for them to do the interviews for researchers because they worked all shifts and so on. And, you know, so, you know, so for some of them, English and learning English was important. For the others, it was just going to be, but then, you know, you might have a situation where their partner decides to come or their mother decides to come and then the situation starts changing, it evolves, you know, and I also think to some extent, you know, they did find that, you know, being uh, the children being able to access uh, English language schools and being brought up bilingually was going to be an advantage. So it's, it's you know, the, the initial uh, issue might be um, labour market and, and good e economic conditions and well relatively in one place and another but then 
uh, the, the, the issues change, you know, they meet somebody or whatever. Yeah. So, so there's, there's that, but, uh, but you know, people, because it's within the context of the European Union, what you also had is um, transport networks being developed to a very, uh, to, to the extent that people could easily travel very cheaply. Mm -hmm. So they don't have to make a decision about whether they're a migrant or, you know, you don't make these decisions. So they can go on back and forth whenever they want, you know. And, and so there's no problem with living in the Highlands if you can get back to Poland. And often, I mean, you know, I know that when I've spoken to people who work in the services, like cleaning and so on, you know, the young guys get into their car once a year and make the trip to Poland, you know. Um, sometimes they prefer to access their services like health services and the dentist and so on in Poland than in the UK because they, they, they feel they get better service, you know. So this, so this idea that people are, you know, so you, you do have people actually specifically going because they have a medical condition and they don't feel they're getting the care that they need in the UK despite the discourse at the moment that everybody's coming to use our health system you know because you know they feel they 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 get the more the culturally appropriate sort of health checks that they want you know so I think that you know it 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 it, it is much more complex and of course you know there are there are other issues as well at play. For example, in Scotland, and you know, would, I think this needs further research. But um, for the university education is free in Scotland. Um, it's not in England. Now I have heard that um, you know, one of the attractions of Scotland is that because of the free, because of the lack of the need to pay fees for university education, that the universities may be attracting more Central and East Europeans and Europe, you know, Spanish and so on, because um, I've heard it mostly in the context of Central and East Europeans from academics at um, traditional universities. You know, that that's, you, you notice that there's a, uh, an increase in number, you know, because students are making use of the, the ability yeah, to move about we? because they're EU citizens. We could, British people could be going to EU institutions, but we don't make use of those opportunities. We're so poor at learning other languages. I mean, there definitely is an element of adventure, and I certainly find that myself when I was doing the studies where people were saying, well, we want to travel and learn about other cultures and so on. and. You know, who knows? They may stay or they may not stay. So, I mean, I think there is that. But I and I also think that uh, there were generally the economic migrant profile as well was younger as well. You know, often um, either singles or uh, uh, or in uh, they may have come from a household, but their partner might be back in Poland or Latvia or Estonia or whatever. But eventually they would have been joined by families. And one of the other things that's also happened is then they might be joined by their grandparents and so on as well. Because, you know, that helps with the childcare and so on. So, you know, in, in that sense, I don't think it's planned. Economic pressures, a sense of adventure, or a promise of excellent free post-secondary education acted as powerful incentives for the Eastern and Central European migrants to Scotland. Many of them, choose rural areas. Commonwealth citizens originally that moved, moved because of economic opportunities, you know, like there aren't too many saturation of 
Chinese businesses there, so we'll set up these things, whatever. But I think now when people move in, they move for, you know, some of them will move for work, but other people will move because they want to bring up their children in a rural area. And they, they want the same things as any rural resident living there wants. You know, they want a quiet life. They often probably uh, internalize the issues around, you know, urban cities as being too cosmopolitan and, uh, you know, too, uh, uh, too many things going on that might be insecure for them or, you know, that they don't want to experience racism, they might not hear, but they have to keep their heads down, you know, because generally um, rural areas tolerate difference if you conform. <laughs> so it's conditional. Those migrants who chose to move to rural areas often work in the agricultural sector. For some of them, the work conditions can be quite difficult. Probably, you know, by and large, the employers are not willing to pay a proper living wage, you know, uh, fundamentally, you know. Uh, and it's, it is driven by keeping the costs of products down and including agricultural products and um, and I think to some extent and this is why I've been very interested in it is um, you know the drive down the drive to make food cheap you know is that a cost because within that cost is the exploitation of labor and that often can be migrant labor in quite poor conditions of work for me, the whole thing around food is what's encapsulated in those prices and the food we eat. You know, and it's, it's another way of bringing it home to people. So when people complain about migrant labor, they have to ask themselves why their food is cheap in some cases. And who's paying that cost? You know, often it's migrant labor being used in, in not always, but it is in many cases. You know, whether it's in, uh, whether it's in Europe, or whether it's in South America or Southeast Asia. On top of difficult labor conditions in rural areas, migrants often face barriers when it comes to accessing government services. If you accept that rural populations generally are experiencing centralization of services and a reduction of services as the public sector basically uh, moves out and you know has third sector organizations and so on non-governmental organizations or whatever delivering services I think there's a real issue there about uh, whether or not um, uh, services are providing consistently across the geographical area or to all groups inclusively because by their very nature third sector organizations can be very specific group targeted and so on so there is that issue for everybody I think um, I mean in the context if you are if you're a migrant I think there are some things that have changed for the populations that are seen to be larger in number okay so you know there has been more attempts to have more leaflets in other languages and so on so for example you wouldn't probably find a leaflet in Estonian but you would find it in Polish for example and that kind of thing so there's uh, from so so there has been some attempt but it isn't by any means that inclusive or that um, 
consistent as well, okay, from that point of view. There are issues around um, uh, access to health services, for example, now that I know everybody else is experiencing it, but uh, certainly from a, both a physical but a mental health point of view, I would say it's pretty non-existent in terms of understanding what the needs of migrants might be and therefore what is the culturally appropriate or not way of actually addressing it. Um, in terms of education, um, you know, primary school, secondary school and so on, there were attempts at there have been English as a second language provision and that kind of thing, but again, it's very patchy. It's very dependent on champions, just, or, you know, a good head teacher in a school being committed and so on. So it's not structurally embedded, it's more an inconsistency. It's not just about, you know, targeting all these things at people who are migrants or minorities. It's about preparing rural young children to actually be good citizens in cosmopolitan places. Aside from the questions of integration, labor practices and access to services, immigrants juggle another, more personal set of challenges. In one of her academic articles, Filomena de Lima wrote that for a typical immigrant, a home is a complex idea. She wrote that a home is both here and there. Home is uh, a physical place, but home is a, is a, it's an, it, just because it's a social construction, it doesn't mean it isn't real, okay? So it's not just in people's minds, it's actually real. It's a, it's part of the material reality. And that material reality is enacted in households. So, um, you know, um, you might have somebody who comes from a Chinese household, but they enact, they, they, the way in which they practice the here home is as here and now is, for example, I'll give you an example. Okay, so so they they will send their children, they will encourage their children to speak in Mandarin or whatever Hakka, which is one of the dialects or whatever. They will send their ch and they will do that by sending their children to Chinese classes, to Mandarin classes on a Saturday. They will teach their children to do the Chinese dragon dances and so on, so they can perform that Chinese New Year. But at the same time, they may celebrate Christmas, you know, because they feel that they don't want their children to be left out. And I found, I found lots of examples of that. Or, you know, through food practices, through, you know, through what they eat, through, you know, the way they relate to each other, uh, to the, as well as the fact that they may maintain the, you know, the, the, all that stuff about transnational identities and so on, as well as maintaining those identities. It's not just about economic transactions, it's about all sorts of things. And it's very interesting to me that you sometimes have, uh, you notice this with the, the people that came from the Indian subcontinent, particularly, um, is, might be a good example, who are Indian uh, or Pakistanis and so on. You know, they have their second and third generations actually rediscovering their, their, their parents' homelands, you know, wanting to find out more about where they come from. And that's not um, a backward-looking thing. That's about them sort of incorporating. And so, you know, the migrant journey set was started by their parents and two generations later, that's still part of their journey. You know, you don't just leave things behind and somehow become one thing or the other. I just 
can't see that myself. This notion of a home that is here and there, in the place of origin, as well as in the place of immigration, also has an effect on host communities. What kind of an effect, and how much of an effect, is not something we know much about for a variety of reasons. I think one of the problems with the integration discourse is that it's very policy-driven, and the academics have come behind it, and uh, it just rehashes the same thing, and they say this, the say, I mean, I've been involved in that myself until I've decided not to engage with it. But it's like the, you know, the, the, the mantra, which is, you know, of course, integration is a two-way process. And some people have never really looked at, okay, so what does this two-way process mean? If all this stuff is, the focus is on migrants, and they're saying, these are the barriers, you know, we experience discrimination in our employment, we're not being allowed to, um, we're not being given supervis supervisory positions, and so on. There's a lot of research that demonstrates what the barriers are that are seemingly in the whole society and yet we're not willing to actually look at the whole society and see how they feel you know because quite honestly maybe they do feel that uh, you know they should not be taking those salaries at below minimum wages and slave labor conditions and so on you know and or they may have whatever reason I don't know you know but I think we're, we're just not doing it and and as long as we're not doing it we are perpetuating a myth of integration as as two way we're not actually looking at it and actually then sort of saying okay if these are the issues and what are the policy implications from it the one uh, one thing that i have managed to do which was um, i had a student from the us from uh, columbia missouri uh, come one year and she came with this idea of wanting to do yet, yet another piece on migrants and I said do you know what there's already masses of this stuff around and I said why don't you look at uh, how local people um, feel about migrants but it had to be informational science so what she decided to do as part of a PhD is to look at the role of the media well at a particular time and that happened during the referendum because it was such a big issue, the whole immigration thing, and looked at uh, the sources of information that local communities access to understand what's happening about immigration and the kind of the authority they give to these sources and so on. So it's a very roundabout way of doing it. She's done a discourse analysis where she looked at the media um, over a period of time, and then she did some interviews um, uh, as a way of exploring some of those issues and, and where they got the sources of information and so on. Because really, in many rural areas, they will not come across the Muslims they think that are a terrorist threat to them, you know, or they think that the Muslims are taking over. I mean, I've, I've had people saying the Muslims are outbreeding British people and they're going to be overtaken by them, you know. Now, where are they getting that from? We know they're getting it from particular types of news news press and new media. When you put a gender lens on the whole issue of immigration, mm. how does that change the way you see what's going on? Well, um, I mean, I think the gender lens is very important because, you know, traditionally when we've looked at migration, we've looked at men migrating to support their families and so on. You know, there's uh, segregated labor markets. You know, what I mean by that is basically certain sectors and certain jobs within those sectors uh, segregate both 
in terms of where the migrants come from, but also in terms of gender. So if you take the nursing sector um, and the, 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 what would you call it, personal care sector. So that includes, could include nurses, but it includes people in, uh, looking after people in uh, nursing homes and things, but also domestic labor, mm -hmm. uh, uh, sort of people, au pairs and a whole lot of that. I mean, that certainly does painted a very different picture and again from the data that I've looked at and you know that's not that's urban and rural to some extent and you know what it suggests is that even educated women find it more difficult I mean migrant men find it difficult but migrant women find it even more difficult to get out of those occupations to use their education they experience more barriers than men so and it also sort of suggests that there are a lot more women working in uh, more vulnerable positions you know whether it's in, in the sort of the whole trafficked women issues and so on and therefore have a bigger struggle in terms of you know, trying to get these, uh, well, in terms of, you know, even in, in a position of being illegal, for example, you know, and, um, and you know, there, there certainly is some documented evidence of women uh, who, um, through their migrant journey, um, you know, experience a lot of sexual abuse, physical abuse, and so on, and that's pretty rife in in the journey even before they get to the host country. So I think that, you know, the the, the gender issues are important. But the other thing that also but you know, sometimes it's not just women, it could be the woman and the partner moving and the children being left behind. So there is the whole issue around the emotional cost to men but also to women in particular who might be seen as a, and I, um, there was a phrase that's been used, and I haven't seen much research on it because it's probably in Polish, but called Polish orphans, um, where uh, children were left with grandparents and so on by parents who were migrating. And that's been happening, you know, uh, in, uh, in East Asia for a very long time, as well as in, I would say, in the Indian subcontinent, where women were migrating as domestic servants to places in the Middle East. But equally, um, I mean, you know, for example, the issue of nurses from the Philippines, as a, you know, because that's one of the things that, um, where so the women come and the men are left behind often, with, and they end up looking after the children. So you have interesting impacts, which, you know, I'm not saying it's negative or positive, but you know, one of the things is men taking over the role of the carer. And you know, so you have changing roles. And women might see that as an escape as well and and becomes the wage earner and then maybe can exercise some power within the household as well. And that changes gender relationships within our household. So I think it's, you know, it's an interesting picture of what's happening there. At the end of our conversation, I asked Philomena if she had any policy recommendations around immigration that would make life easier for everybody, the immigrants and their families and the host communities. If we argued that everybody has a right to access to 
services that are appropriate for the society that they live in, okay, in the context of the society. And if those services were designed to meet the most extreme situations, then they would be inclusive for all. And I think that's what, that's the vision we should work for. I know it's, you know, all these issues around cuts and so on. So what, what does that mean for, you know, if, if we had an inclusive system, then how would that meet the needs of everyone, really? And I'm sure there will be problems with that, but you know, at least we can start by imagining what that would be like, because I think we tend to dismiss it because we think it's not a pragmatic solution. You know, but why don't we have the discussion about it? The other issues, I think this is a challenge, and it's, be, it's brought up every time, not just with migrants, but with issues around poverty and so on. You know, people are not divided up into economic agents, I don't know, social agents, psychological agents. You know, we are a whole people, and our policies continue to be in sectors and in sectoral, you know, whether it's social work, education, and so on. And so you can have one, uh, several agencies intervening in this person's life endlessly. And I think somehow, I know it's talked about a lot, but how do we develop those horizontal integration? you know, and not just these vertical silos. I think, you know, I can't see how that, uh, we're going to, how we can do, I mean, that, and that applies to all of us, it applies, and that's why I mean, if we devise policies in the most holistic way, and I, I know it's a challenge, but we have to start somewhere, because otherwise it's just path dependencies, you know, and as, as you know, as I, as I think I've said this to you before, because I just see, you know, people are grappling with the, the new uh, refugee and uh, asylum situation, and and uh, you know, people are sort of sort of saying, well, you know, we need to look at it in terms of rollouts. Look at what's been written already, you know, rather than spend and and I I mean that to policymakers and I suppose as academics, you know, look at what's already been done and what can we learn from what's already been said, rather than keep re we spend a lot of money reinventing research and actually suggesting policies that never get implemented, you know, because I think it's all there. Just take it seriously, you know, and, and the platitudes about, you know, my integration having to be a two-way process and so on. So what, you know, what does that actually mean? It does actually mean when you commission research, if you have to on migrants, you should also be looking at it from the perspective of host communities at the same time, you know, because we know plenty about what the employers want. You know, do we know what the host communities feel and want? I don't feel we do, in relation to migration per se. You know, we don't. Is it the role of academics to give policy solutions, or is it the role of academics to suggest alternative paths and for politicians and policymakers to make the decisions? Because I don't believe there's anything that's value-free in this discussion. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to Rural Roots. My name is Brian First, and I work at the Leslie Harris Center of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University of Newfoundland in St. John's. This show is produced in collaboration between the Harris Center, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership, bringing together rural scholars and policymakers in Canada and abroad. The show is supported through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant. In this episode, 
I spoke with Dr. Filomena Dalima, a sociologist at the University of Highlands and Islands in Scotland. Filomena studies immigration issues in rural areas. If you listened to Rural Roots on your campus or community radio, please let them know if you liked the show. If you listened to the podcast version of the show, feel free to encourage your local radio station to get in touch if they're interested in broadcasting the program. The show is available to community and campus radio stations free of charge through the National Campus and Community Radio Association Program Exchange. Thanks for listening. To subscribe to the podcast, visit ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's all one word, rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. I'm Boyan Fierst, and you just listened to Rural Roots. Stay in touch. Stay in touch.